0: You know how I'm uh, really dumb and not really capable of having a cohesive thought all the way through? No,
1: no, we don't tolerate (laughs) negative self-talk here. But yeah, go on.
0: I think I had one. I think I had a good idea. Oh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So you know how like we want to defund and demilitarize the police, but the police don't want to do that. And a bunch of like conservative people don't want them to do that. But they have all these like like, if we're being honest, they have all this really cool shit, like these urban assault vehicles and tanks and stuff.
2: Yeah, it's totally unnecessary,
0: but <laughs> it, we can all agree that it's, it's pretty awesome. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then like the police are violent and they want to get their violence out and they choose to get it out on like poor and black people usually. What if instead of having them patrol neighborhoods, we put them police department versus police department from different towns <laughs> of similar size on pay-per-view? Like it,
1: like an intramural softball
0: league. Yeah, but it's on pay-per-view and then all the people that have hard-ons for police can watch it and pay for it. And then that money can go back into like neighborhoods and school systems. Oh.
2: It's true. They still get their APCs. Yeah. And their riot gear. Yeah. I like that. Isn't that just like technically war?
0: (laughs) Yeah, but like...
1: But like friendly war.
0: No. No. They're going to kill... It's live (laughs) ammunition.
2: (laughs) That's just like uh, running man. This is you want. It's just like you want an eighties, a shitty eighties action movie with yeah, Schwarzenegger. But Running Man is like a political prisoner pitted against basically
0: cops. This would be cop versus cop.
2: Yeah. They'd probably it's be awful. down to do it. I mean MMA just it'd be like it would just be MMA, but with armor personnel carriers. <laughs> MMA mixed with battle bots. Yeah. <laughs>
1: could also like tap into the sports crowd by getting like cities that already have existing rivalries
2: oh yeah that's true each other mm-hmm. like
1: boston new york
2: yeah one of those like midwest cities that have nothing else going on other than sports every midwest city <laughs> damn son where'd you find this
0: my
1: personal preference is
3: to be, be taken to the truth if I
1: Get rid of the industrial system by whatever means may be necessary.
2: By whatever means may be necessary. By whatever means may be necessary. May be necessary. Right, first of all, do you want to talk about um, your your Jude Teeth cliffhanger that I oh, talked yeah. about last time?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I have a lot to talk about, but I'll, I can dive right in.
2: Um, we'll start with that, yeah, because we left it a cliffhanger, and I know we did. And now it's are...
1: and now it's July fifth, but that's fine. I guess we'll talk about it. Who knows when um, this comes out? True. Yeah, it might be <laughs> July fifteenth. Um. So yeah, we, there, there was a webinar put on by um, the National Park Service Chesapeake Bay Office. Um, it was called Juneteenth: We Need to Talk, and it was marketed as kind of the subtext so was a conversation on the intersection of race, history, and the outdoors. So, I saw that and was like, that's relevant to everything I talk about. Uh, so, I'll sign up. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was a webinar panel discussion with eight Black professionals in the conservation community. Um, about half of them were Park Service employees. Um, so, that included an archaeologist. Um, she's actually the youngest Black woman to have ever received a PhD in archaeology, um, oh. the chief of resource management or resource stewardship at. Colonial National Historic Park in Virginia, and also the superintendent of Charles Young Buffalo Soldiers National Monument in Ohio, which is a pretty cool site I didn't know about, um, I hadn't heard of. Uh, it's so it commemorates the life of Charles Young, who was an enslaved person who managed to escape slavery and who rose to become a Buffalo soldier um, in the army and served as its first African American colonel. <coughs> um, so that was a cool story, And then So other folks on the panel, non-NPS folks, were um, a lot of women who work for nonprofits that are concerned about these issues and also um, the landscape architect (laughs) who works largely with urban development and city planning. And um, so like I said, it was put on by the Chesapeake Bay office, so they deal with the whole watershed of that area. So mostly the mid-Atlantic states, but um, everything we talked about is um, pretty applicable anywhere. So the panel was really a conversation among these eight black panelists about everything that's going on. Um, It was a pretty interesting format because the whole audience was obviously not visible to the panelists and they weren't really even checking and interacting with the chat box. So it was kind of just us all sitting in on this conversation among them, Um, which is kind of a unique opportunity that I'm not ever able to do as like a white person to like act like I'm not in the room, but sort of be privy to these conversations
2: um yeah which is also like a really like side note of just of so many times when you when this kind of stuff comes up about like diversity in the outdoors or talking about opening spaces it's usually like a white panel or or the mm -hmm. white audience just has much more of a say than that they're just like the the activists usually responding to the white audience and this this is nice because it just basically we're told to shut the fuck up and let them talk
1: yeah i think that there have been white folks involved in the planning of it um I think the superintendent of the site that put it on came on briefly at the beginning to kind of introduce um, the webinar, and then she was like, all right, I'm going to turn my camera off, and, like, we're not going to be the spotlight of this. Um, It was, so that was cool to sort of sit in on that. Um, So, yeah, well, I guess we'll link the webinar, because it's on YouTube. We recorded it, um, so you can watch the whole thing, but I'll try to kind of pull out some of the key takeaways that I found most useful. Um, So... First, people sort of started out by sharing their initial thoughts and experiences in the outdoors kind of generically. And I was sadly not really surprised to hear that for many, um, despite their line of work, the outdoors is a place that can actually instill not just joy, but also fear. Um, one woman pointed out that uh, historically, highways and these open spaces were really dangerous for Black Americans who would usually travel in groups or in caravans as a way to feel more safe. So. That got me thinking about outdoor recreation and through hiking, um, which is really a lot different than going car camping with like your family, a group of friends, because it, it might be really a lot more difficult to get that kind of safety and numbers feeling. Um, the woman who is a landscape architect and urban planner had a lot of interesting things to say about how green spaces, um, even in black neighborhoods, have historically been designed and planned by white people. And so much in modern cities is a result of systemic racism, um, like redlining, which relegated black people to certain neighborhoods, um, Like you know, literally didn't allow them to buy homes in white neighborhoods, and we're still feeling the effects of that system uh, when we look at racial makeup of different neighborhoods in our cities today. Um, so she pointed out that black people don't occupy the space that they chose, um, but rather the spaces where they were put, um, yeah. where they were literally allowed to exist. So um, she brought up Seneca Village, which is an area in New York City that uh, I learned about in grad school because I went to school right next to it. Um, So it's a neighborhood on what's now the Upper West Side of Manhattan, um, and it was occupied mostly by uh, recently freed enslaved people. um, And it was literally bulldozed to build Central Park, which was an intentionally um, white space. And there's been a lot of really cool scholarship about Seneca Village, especially because it's still a really active um, archeological site. People are still digging up artifacts in Central Park that belong to the black people who live there. Um, so she pointed out that um, kind of the irony between that displacement and then the building of white spaces. Um, she pointed out that the lack of access to parks and green space is something that hugely affects how black people perceive the outdoors. And that like so much stems from these policies of systemic racism. Um, yeah. One woman called Parks in Her Neighborhood Hoodwoods, um, which I thought was really great. <laughs> and and she pointed out that um, the number and also the types of green spaces that people have access to in their immediate vicinities is just going to be a huge factor in how they perceive public lands and the outdoors throughout their lives. What are you going to say?
2: I was gonna say like that. That goes a lot to like whenever people say that, oh, the outdoors are there, and if anyone just, if anyone, if you really want to go out there, you you will go out there. Like you'll make an effort to go for it. Yeah. But that just kind of shows like there's larger systemic issues that are that make that not true. Like that is something that is like categorically very difficult to overcome. Like the idea that like oh, the outdoors are just there, but if you are been relegated to these very uh, just they're terrible spaces like they these people were like they were were redlined they were not put into areas that were that were conducive to them actually having access to the outdoors like they were put into very destroyed areas destroyed neighborhoods relegated to these shitty areas where they didn't have access to those systems and that's very hard to overcome especially if it's like a long-term generational impact
0: yeah yeah and i think it's worth saying that like if you want to be a full-time dedicated dirt bag and like live out of a van and like climb and hike all the time and stuff. Like anybody really can do that pretty much, but that's not most people's relationship to the outdoors. And like most people shouldn't have to sacrifice the whole rest of their life to go be in the outdoors a little bit. And that's something as like middle-class or upper-class or white people have um have an advantage in is that you can just go out for a weekend a lot easier than a lot of other people can
1: or even like just for the afternoon like there's sure there's been so much evidence of the proximity of green space and its relation to like mental and physical health um and when you're relegating people to like shitty neighborhoods and you don't put parks there you know and you don't fund those even if you're taxing those people then that's going to have an effect on them um i guess that kind of gets Mm -hmm. into environmental racism that we've talked about about. yeah and
0: there's the whole private property piece of it, too, where a lot of more affluent people have access to their own backyard, like literally their own backyard that has yeah. good, nice green space in it.
1: So back to the panel, um, because it was put on by the NPS, um, it kind of focused on, the conversation kind of focused on how to tell um, black stories specifically in park service sites. Um, uh, one panelist, the superintendent at the Buffalo Soldier site, um, pointed out that Black history is American history. The two can't really be separated um, and they can't really be neatly compartmentalized. Um, And a few people noted that at some sites like the Buffalo Soldier one, people kind of go expecting to learn about historically prominent black figures. Um, So they're kind of ready to receive those stories, but there's like, quote unquote, black histories in probably every single park service site. So, but the context of those sites kind of makes it trickier to tell those stories since, like I said, people might go to a Buffalo Soldier site expecting to hear about this black historical figure, but they're probably not going to these big name parks expecting to hear about like the people of color who helped build the infrastructure there or who occupied it and were displaced to build it, um, you know, and, and stuff like that. So on one hand, the parks do provide this really unique opportunity to do interpretation and to tell these stories, but also it can be, I think really difficult to tell the stories that people just aren't ready to hear Um, So that kind of echoed what I tried to bring up a few episodes ago, that to kind of change these narratives around a lot of our national parks and um, other spaces, it really has to start with upper-level management decisions on what are the key aspects of the story of that place that we need to teach the public about. Um, Because that's going to affect what type of interpretive programs, you know, the rangers do. Um, what gets put in the park brochure, like what type of educational programming they do in schools and all that. Um, so I think that it really comes down to the parks themselves um, just being more willing to incorporate a lot of those stories into their like institutional narratives.
2: It mm-hmm. um, also like be good that if if it's incorporated, like like the thing that stood out, what you said was about Black history being a part of American history. And so many times when you go to some of these um, interactive displays or you go to these monuments and you learn about the history, it's always, at least to me, of seeing seen like it, the US history is just like the white people part of it. It's never like the black, the indigenous people, even Hispanic, Mexican influences, um, are just like tangential they're like side characters in the main like white american history. Yeah, plot. sometimes that yeah. sometimes there's literally even like a different section
0: of a museum or something like oh here's the corner where we put all the native american <laughs> stuff. Yeah.
2: Here's <laughs> yeah. a token indigenous people corner, yeah.
1: I thought the the panel's kind of biggest sort of piece of advice to each other um, and to other members of the black community for moving forward just was just to kind of continue being models of black people who engage with the outdoors and who are pushing to have these conversations. Um, So many of them pointed out how important it was for them to have a mentor or someone who kind of showed them the way in the field of the park service, um, which is overwhelmingly white, as many studies have shown both visitors and employees are overwhelmingly white. Um, So many of them kind of also pointed out the importance of like just showing younger black folks that outdoor spaces um, and these parks can be spaces of unity and equality for people. Like there are spaces where you can feel safe and there are spaces that do belong to you um, even if they don't always feel like it. Um, several of them alluded to the fact that the national parks or maybe um, outdoor spaces in general are not places where they have historically felt welcome. Um, but if people of color can Um, see people who look like them occupying and also working in um, and managing these spaces then they'll feel more welcome and they'll bring their friends and their family um, and that can have a a big impact in the long run Um, so that was kind of the biggest takeaway for people of color black people listening to the panel was to kind of keep fighting the good fight and just keep having um, even just a visual presence is is work that can make an impact Um, so yeah, those were my biggest takeaways um that i wanted to share with everyone but uh yeah i would again just encourage people um listeners especially if you're black or a person of color to give it a listen um i found it to be really enlightening and thought-provoking and was fun to watch
2: i think that's the the last point about representation is it's like super important i this, that seems to be like one of the biggest barriers it's this kind of cascading effect of like I don't see anyone that looks like me out there, so I'm not going to go out there. And eventually just kind of like step up and be that person out there to to kind of, at least least for me, like I've definitely encouraged a lot of my fellow people of color to get out there and to try to, hike and to be a part of that stuff like it doesn't it doesn't have to be as extensive as a through hike but even just like going on day hikes and being a, like making those spaces work I because i grew up like hearing that like we don't do that or we, do, we don't belong out there or something like that. And, and it's a very internalized idea it's very hard to get away with and it's because of all the systemic issues i mentioned before but it's like it's fucking hard to overcome that stuff especially if you just look at like videos of people hiking or climbing or being cyclists and stuff and you just never see any people of color doing that shit
1: yeah that was kind of the biggest like when i was first kind of being confronted with issues of like race problems in the outdoors like that's an issue that I, i had never thought of that was pretty novel to me like a few years ago was like Yeah, when I would never notice looking at advertisements for like outdoor gear, clothing, whatever, that they're like overwhelmingly white. (laughs) Like, I would never notice that. But to have that issue pointed out to me, I was like, holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Like, I don't see ever, like very rarely, maybe now a day is a little bit more, but like five or 10 years ago, like not as often at all to see people of color in even in like a catalog or in advertisements at all.
2: Yeah. Uh, and it's not, and it's not like an overt thing. Like those are people that don't realize, especially like when it comes to like these racial issues, it's not very, or it's not always overt. Like it's not always getting called the N-word entree or having a racist learn thrown at you. It's just the idea of like looking through outside magazine, like going, looking, I've like, I've seen, I've read through so many different volumes of outside, and like even just the advertisements. It's changed a lot in the past couple of years, especially the past year, but it's still just been like constantly like, oh, here's another white climber. Here's another white runner. Here's another you know, like another white hiker and just constantly saying that and just never knowing that there's actually people who are, who look like me, who actually do this stuff too.
1: Yeah. I think that's important to point out to people like that you mentioned who say like, oh, well, you know, I've never said anything mean to a black person outside or like, I don't ever see them being treated differently. It's like, it's not always coming down to that. It, it can be things as small as, yeah, like just visual representation.
0: I think that kind of ties back into the point you made too about, um, they're not being like leaders or role models within the outdoor community. Yeah. And that's, that's like a perfect example of systemic racism where, um, this kind of like whole generation that got skipped over, well, multiple generations that got skipped over cause they just didn't have the opportunity or, or back when it was legitimately dangerous from a racist perspective for them to be outdoors means that there's this whole current younger generation that doesn't have anyone to look up to in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Like it's an even bigger problem in the civil rights movement where a lot of the leaders were like actually assassinated. So there really are like no leaders of that generation. Like that generation just got skipped over. So a lot of like the BLM leaders and stuff are just um, kind of starting from scratch. Like they didn't have the role models from the 60s and 70s because they're actually dead. In the outdoors, it's not that they're dead. It's just that they they weren't out there because it was not safe for them to be out there or they were getting redlined in the neighborhoods they couldn't be in, or it wasn't safe for them to get to the places they wanted to go to. Or I guess in a lot of cases, these like colleges weren't accepting people and you couldn't become an archeologist or a historian right. or.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, anyways, to that point about representation, do want to shout out um, Corey asim Waltering, who related to through hiking and being Woo-hoo! black, which is great. <laughs> Set the new Ice Age Trail FKT. 1200 miles in 21 days, 13 hours, 31 minutes. And I was following him on Instagram and it's <laughs> fucking ridiculous, dude. He's like 50 mile days for three weeks. And the last push I think was insane. I think it was like a hundred miles in like a day or two. Just like nonstop. I don't know much
0: about the Ice Age Trail.
1: Apparently it's in Wisconsin. I just looked it up. And had he done through hikes before, like other trails?
2: I don't think so. I think he. I think he was a runner before that. So it was assist. It was a supported. Um, so he was met by a support vehicle along the way. Um, which I don't care about that. Yeah, he's an ultra runner. There's Instagram now. Um, before this, and and yeah, he went for the the record on this. Um, I don't know specifically why he went for this one. I've never heard of this. I mean, I've heard of this trail before. I've just never like really known anything he's, about it. Other than
0: he's from the Midwest, and it's like the only long Midwestern trail, so that could be part of it. Yeah.
2: I think he's from Um, the West. I think he's from Illinois. Hopefully he does a real trail next time. (laughs) Make it even more impressive a trail. Yeah, but like,
1: honestly, I feel like hiking the Ice Age Trail is a pretty responsible way to recreate. like, you're not going to see anybody else.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No one's out there. It's not like the
1: JMT, because those motherfuckers are out there already. Yeah. They don't give a fuck about social distancing.
2: Yeah, Falling is, uh, is, is, uh, he seems like a really nice... Sweet guy. It's
0: pretty dope. He's also part of the LGBT community too, right? Oh fuck
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: Um come on, I mean, come Lance, on the pod. Plants, <laughs> <Yeah, sir. laughs> do you know if like if racial disparities are as are as common in like ultra running community as they are in through banking? Like, do you know anything
2: about Oh, numbers? that's a good question. So so yeah, yeah, I I was actually gonna bring this up too, because there's something came up in the climate community that I want to talk about. Um kind of relates to all this. Um, I would say if I was to rank them in terms of like racial disparities, I would say running is probably the most inclusive community um, and trail running and ultra running. It is the easiest running is the easiest sport to get into. There's yeah. very little barriers of entry, um, which uh, that's not to say it's safer than any other sport or it's anything better as obviously as the, what happened to Ahmaud Aubrey um, kind of shows that you can Runners, especially runners of color, not, or runners of color specifically, are not always safe. They do get chased, they, they get murdered. But it's very, it's at least as a, as a POC runner, it's like it's very stressful to be running like a nice neighborhood sometimes, especially early morning or late at night. Um, but as a whole, I find that running, trail running, um, of all the different outdoor communities I've been a part of, are definitely the most inclusive. There's definitely the ones where I've seen the most people of color at events, like trail races. I've seen a large, and it might just be also because I'm in the Bay Area; it's more diverse. But as as a whole, I've seen way more like Asian, um, Indian, Hispanic, Black runners than I have like in other communities. I think there's the show, probably I'm more concerned. women in the ultra running community than yeah. It's hiking too. from some of those statistics and stuff I've said; it's it's pretty even um, in terms of male female breakdowns um it is it is the it's the easiest sport to get into it's literally just needed running shoes you know like i started running with just a shitty pair of like 20 dollar running shoes that i got from some outlet somewhere and that's pretty much all you need it's you can you can make it more expensive obviously but for the most part like just buying running shoes um so the cost of entry barrier of entry like you can depending on your neighborhood obviously it's not always the case but it is pretty easy to get outside and run uh, not I like you could, it's cool that you can <laughs>
0: It's cool that you can uh, you can train for a trail ultra, like, not on trail, too. Yeah. People it, want, I mean, West definitely more for... difficult, but
2: you can do it. Yeah. It's totally possible. Trails are nice. They're, they're, it's pretty nice to be able to run. It's nice being able to, like, run away from shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it's, a, it's one of the most valuable skills I've been able to pick up. Like, whenever just, like, not feeling safe or anything, like, hey, I can just... Yeah.
1: Like the point it's like if you want to feel it's like learning self-defense it's like being yeah. a fast runner would give you like more peace of mind rather than you know being yeah being in like the woods with a heavy pack thinking like oh i can't get away from shit if shit were to hit the fan is a little bit more stressful
2: and again it's not this it's not entirely safe it's not like the most it is not the most the friendliest of all but of all the outdoor communities i've been a part of and that includes cycling climbing backpacking um, definitely running is the most inclusive one it's the one that I've always felt the safest that like events and stuff I've been there I've met a lot of different like when people talk about like their outdoor communities of being like inviting and welcoming the outdoor running was the ones I only one I've been a part of that has ever been like come join us come run with us running cl- running clubs and stuff and it's like oh we're running all ages all pieces that kind of stuff for the events that I've put on they're also like there are also some of the cheapest events, um, like the mainstream races, like um, city races. Like I've done San Francisco Marathon a few times and big Sur and stuff. There, those get more expensive, but relatively speaking, compared to like other activities, it's the cheapest because you like that one-time fee, basically, and you get a ton of stuff. Um, and trail races are even cheaper than that because you can just volunteer or something, and then you get a free entry.
1: I wonder if that's also like because if you get a lot of respect in that community because because there's no gear. If you're good at that sport it really just comes down to like your actual talent rather than like anyone yeah. can fucking fruit hike especially if they can afford two two grand worth like ultra light gear you know like mm-hmm. there there's not as much like respect for people based on ability it's like yeah i mean you, you get some camaraderie on through hikes because you're like damn we're all doing this like crazy adventure together but it's like none of us are exceptional athletes just because we can like hike 25 miles a day like yeah. most people most young people who are able can do that so
2: yeah, looking at you cycling, you can just yeah. buy your fitness.
1: <laughs> hey,
2: I can't climb because I don't have expensive gear. Yeah. Um, so that kind of ties in, though, something that actually just came up a few hours ago, um, or at least that I kind of started reading about. Um, Rock and Ice magazine had two articles that were really interesting. So the first one was written a few days ago by a writer named Dwayne Raleigh, who wrote this article about. Um, it was time to change the names of some routes. So uh, I don't know if anyone climbs here. It's obviously kind of related to outdoors. And this is also very much on my mind because I've been climbing a lot lately. That's kind of been my replacement activity because it's the one I can still do like socially distant. Once I'm on a route, it's like easy to be far apart from people and going to less crowded places. But... um, so, if anyone doesn't know how climbing works, is that you go up a route, or, uh, basically a, a climb, established climbing path, basically that you climb up in a technical climbing rock base, depending off a sport climb trap or whatever. And a lot of the times, the people who um, who set the routes, who established the lines that you climb up, name those things. So the issue with that, as you imagine, is a lot of old school climbers from like a lot of these routes were set like different times, and they have potentially problematic names like very old like people who don't are where they have like a lot of you can just name around whatever you want basically so uh especially we want to talk about like the outdoor community being like very thinking about it being progressive there's a lot of assholes who climb a lot of assholes who do a lot of trails and who do all this stuff but and they name shit very shitty things very offensive names um i was reading through some like old guidebooks there is a there's a climb somewhere that was literally called inward leap Um, yeah and it was and it's super shitty so uh rock and ice magazine came up this article and they said that we should rename we should we should change some of these offensive names and get rid of them um so it's a white dude who wrote this article and he's he kind of came at it from the perspective of like we should get rid of names of climbs that are have like dick or fuck in the word in the name or something um, oh, he missed the point. So that kind of offensive <laughs> versus like, and they didn't think to consult like a person of color who might have more other issues. Cause there's other systemic issues, obviously, with the climate communities, with all outdoor communities, but there's some other like uh, things that are really offensive to like people of color. There's um, some climbs. I, I'm not sure where, but it was one reading those was in Canada where there were some climbs named like the squaw or the squaw's tit, which are very offensive to mm-hmm. the indigenous people of that area um they've since then like kind of been renamed and stuff but there's a there's a ton of stuff just because there's so many like literally thousands upon thousands of different routes they have all these different varying names and and obviously like some of them are really shitty and should be changed and it's not a big deal to change them like it doesn't take away from the climbing itself like no this is no longer inward leap now it's not it's, it's not as classic anymore <laughs> and of course like um and so that was the first article and it was kind of like it was good to talk about like wanting to change the offensive, but they didn't talk about that, the racial aspect of it. And then um, the publisher, the editor-in-chief came out with another article that's apologized for publishing that first article for not kind of thinking things through and realizing that it may have been better to have a person of color write it or get that person of color's perspective on these issues rather than just have a white dude who's just like who's offended that a route might have the word fuck in it or something. Um and so, yeah, the editor in chief of Rock and Ice magazine actually stepped down uh, because of this. I may have stepped down for other reasons, but this seems to be like the key reason he gave that. And uh, the climbing community that I've seen so far, some of the comments I've seen are just god awful. Like the climbing, climbing. When you talk about like the spectrum of inclusive outdoor activities, climbing is probably the least inclusive one, and not just racially, but like. It is it is the shittiest community of outdoor. Like I love climbing so much. I I've been doing so much like trad multi-pitch climbing these past few weeks like Yosemite and Tahoe. And it is honestly just like some of the worst people like there. <laughs> just like dirtbag 20 somethings like living out of vans and stuff who are just like assholes who are not helpful who are kind of really shitty and and especially the old trad climbers old school climbers who just shit on everything and think if you're not trad climbing you're doing it wrong yeah
0: climbing's a weird one for me because i feel like the the variation between groups of climbers is so huge like some of the best people i've met in the outdoors are climbers but then some of the worst ones are too it has like a super low floor and a super high ceiling
2: To give you kind of an example of of um how tone deaf and not inclusive the climbing community can be so you you in climbing you use something called carabiners locking carabiners very often and a lot of the times they're sort of shortened the name is shortened and they're called beaners which is (laughs) and people don't seem to have any issue with calling these things that like and as a mexican i obviously very offensive Uh, it's super shitty when people are like talking about like oh i've I'm out of beaners or like i don't have any beaners and it's just like this slur that's just casually thrown around and the second i see anybody mention this like hey that's kind of a slur like it's super offensive people are like no nah, it's just a nickname for them it's fine like why take your politics out of the climbing like it's just the word it doesn't matter and it's just like yeah that sucks it's it's it sucks because climbing's awesome it's really fun i definitely encourage people for, to get into climbing but yeah the climbing community is just god awful um We actually had a, I'm in the Bay Area. So just to kind of show you how kind of shitty sometimes white liberals can be. um, There's a local crag here in the Bay Area that I sometimes go to. I haven't gone to in a while because it's been closed. But um, there's a a black girls climbing club that started climbing there um, because they recently reopened it. And um, there's a really fucked up video. There's a video from the head coach of this climbing club who they were climbing in in this place called cragmont it's up in the berkeley hills which is a like a wealthy area wealthy neighborhood in berkeley and somebody fucking called one of the um, young black girls the n-word like she was saying you fucking n-words need to go home or something like that like from this climbing area and it's just and it's fucked up. Like, it's horrifying that that happened here in Berkeley. or, or yeah. just, It fucked up that it happened anywhere. But you would think, like, someplace like the Bay Area in Berkeley, which has this progressive history, that wouldn't be a problem. But I yeah, think it's, it's important to share
0: those stories, though, because, like, people seem to think that racism only exists, like, where I'm from, like, in yeah. the rural places in the Midwest and in the South and stuff. And it's like, well, if it exists in Berkeley, it exists everywhere.
2: Yeah. And, like, there's these... It's fucking. It's like literally little black girls trying to climb, trying to be part of this community. Just and then the the video of the the head coach is just. It's an Instagram like uh, one of those IGTV videos, and it's just so fucked up. She just starts like crying in the middle of it, just trying to because she's trying to explain to these girls that like this is this, you know trying to how do you deal with that? How do you talk to someone who has to experience that? And that? Yeah, that's the kind of shit that happens a lot of time.
0: This is mostly unrelated but (laughs) when i was in high school i was hanging out with my friends and we were mostly like the kind of punk nerd kids and we played dodgeball in this park a couple times a week usually and uh one time the varsity soccer team drove by in a truck and they yelled the n-word at a bunch of my black friends that were there with us we like tried to chase them down but we couldn't catch them on our bikes but um the next day was the homecoming parade and it was really cold out we put a bunch of water balloons in a cooler full of ice and waited for their float to come around the corner. And <laughs> we fucking lit them all up with these water balloons. <laughs> then they just had to stay on this float, like soaking wet for the, the rest of the parade.
1: I like the vision of you as like a, as like a biker gang of like facial justice vigilantes. <laughs> Throwing,
0: just on wielding,
3: like, wielding
1: water balloons. Icy water balloons. On like balloons.
0: Thrift, store, thrift store 10 speeds and BMXs.
1: With your dodgeball <laughs> under your arm.
0: Yeah, cute, cute little
2: angry ragamuffins. It was like that. Aww.
1: <laughs> and look where you are to the egg, That's super same cute. Rag-a-muffin. Then we that's how an- you
2: show solidarity with people. Yeah.
0: Antifa action. <laughs>
1: yeah. Maybe
0: Antifa. But anyway, yeah, like
2: the climate community sucks. Running's cool. Backpacking's okay. backpacking has um, Backpacking has made me. In the past few months, past few weeks, uh, it's made me a little, it's been like hit or miss, but for the most part, it's been pretty positive to seeing people's responsive. It's like, we, it's like funny following some like um, outdoor gear companies, like the cottage makers of packs and stuff and them showing support and just being like, yeah, we're donating profits to this or so, or just the very least giving, like publicly talking about some of these issues. And obviously not everyone's doing that, but it is, it is like, it's more than I've seen from other communities. Just
0: don't read the comments if you do yeah, totally. if you want to keep feeling good about this <laughs>
2: yeah uh do you want to talk about R- mount rushmore um sure yeah, yeah, yeah sure. let's talk about Mount rushmore um i i was not in town when this was going on i was blissfully away during the fourth of july uh, which was um uh, depending on what you're listening to either yesterday or many many weeks ago uh, I'll try to edit this one faster. Oh, so you were
1: you were escaping <laughs> you were escaping into the outdoors because that's where you feel safe. And safe. Yeah,
0: you weren't no. you weren't doing what I was doing and watching the live stream for two and a half hours while having a <laughs> panic attack.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I was checking it on it
1: briefly, but I was watching a movie. I
2: I just kind of knew like I didn't didn't purposefully plan to leave this weekend, and um, I had service. So as you as I'm sitting in this beautiful like tent, cozy. My girlfriend, having just finished like a very hard multi-pitch trad climb up this beautiful rock face, um, and getting like text bombs from you, like turning my phone on and just discussing <laughs> what's happening at Mount Rushmore and Sorry. the shit show, and then just going opening Reddit and just seeing all the posts about it, and I was like, "I'm going back. I'm going to sleep." I'm <laughs> right. Sorry well,
1: that Lauren uh... and I are engaged political citizens. We don't use the outdoors as an excuse. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you took time for self care. Yeah, and yeah. and you came back recharged and ready to handle these issues.
2: Just laugh about
0: I, Mount Rushmore. <laughs> I'm just glad you're learning. Can so you, that you, can, 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 teach you
2: me. can either of you explain what happened?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I watched the
2: whole live stream. Well, so, I, the or,
1: backstory is that like the so they used to do fireworks at Mount Rushmore. I think they've done them a few times. They banned them like ten years ago because every year they started at least one wildfire and also like all the um, like various minerals and shit in the in the fireworks themselves, like the things that make them colorful, um, leach into the groundwater and contaminate the groundwater. And there's just like all these environmental effects. that like scares the wildlife and shit, obviously. Um, so the park, the park service runs um, oversees the area now. Um, so they had long banned this, and then a few months ago, Trump had the idea to do a Fourth of July fireworks celebration there. Um, they did do the kind of environmental assessments that we've talked on, talked about before, Um, but you know, they were able to say all the adverse effects that this was going to have, but they still at the end of the day, like labeled it as somehow safe to continue. So I think a lot of people in the park service tried to fight it. And a lot of the um, like resource management people, especially at at the Mount Rushmore site tried to fight it, Um, but they were not able, probably because Bernhardt was very in favor of it. and pushed for it so, uh, they approved the fireworks, and then so, yeah, so it was July 3rd, um, Friday, and that's that's kind of the backstory. Jordan, do you want to like take over the current?
0: I, I want to do a little more backstory. Well, the let's backstory back. is that
1: this land let's is, go back to
0: is, 1868.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <This land> is, <laughs> so, the Black Hill, the Lakota people, so the, the Sioux people, um, the Black Hills are sort of their, their sacred land, they so they. Their people um, moved there from, I think, like the Minnesota area in like 1600, but they kind of quickly embraced that area as sort of their sacred land. So it's like sort of their Mecca or their Jerusalem to kind of put it in more Western terms. Um, and then, yeah, the land was stolen from them. And it has been, I mean, we throw around that land is stolen a lot, I think, and that, that term kind of loosens its meaning. But the Supreme Court in 1980 decided that <laughs> the land legally was stolen. Um, there were many treaties that were violated, and the the U.S. government was supposed to pay reparations to the people, but they've said like, no, we don't want reparations. We want our sacred land back, um, and they've been yeah, fighting for forty years. Yeah, there's something interesting about to
0: that back. too, the the whole reparations thing, um, because you'll see that thrown around sometimes if you if you're a glutton for punishment and you read the comments <laughs> like I do, that like the U.S. government tried to settle with the Sioux Nation and um, Pay them close to a billion dollars for um, reparations for this land, and so you'll hear like white people sometimes say like, "Well, uh, they denied the money. The Sioux aren't taking the money." And there's two reasons for that. One is that they don't want the money; they want their land back. That's a pretty simple answer. The second is um, the government doesn't. They're not going to pay that reparations actually to the people of the sioux tribes the deal is that it goes to um what's that called again the The bureau of indian affairs mm-hmm. so it's basically the government paying itself like it's just transferring money from one part of the government to another part of the government it's not like a no strings attached reparations to the to the sioux people
1: yeah it's not like a but I, but check. I think that's important <laughs> for this whole everybody. story
0: is that like so this land was stolen from from the sioux people and then there was a treaty of fort laramie in 1868 that basically said like oh actually this land belongs to the sioux people and we're gonna let them have it and then which is supposed after- to be like
2: the highest like law of the land like that's the treaties to yeah the treaties are yeah. supposed to like that's super key when people are like talking about the, all the law and order crowd to talk about this like you have a treaty that's supposed to supersede all these other things.
0: It literally says it in the Constitution. So everyone that jacks off about the Constitution needs <laughs> to read it and read the parts that say that the treaties are the law of the land. Like, it, those are the words. It's There's no qualms about it. But that treaty was violated, and that's why we have the dumb piece of shit Mount Rushmore carved into a beautiful mountain. Um, but but that's a that, did, of the that didn't come until, like,
1: 1930, I think, and it was carved yeah. by... The Ku Klux in. Klan. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, the KKK carved up this beautiful mountain. Basically, well,
1: it was a sculptor who was probably a member of the KKK, but at the very least had very close ties to the KKK. He also is the sculptor yeah. of like Stone Mountain, which is like a Confederate circle jerk site in Virginia. Yeah, which is also
2: oh, like I think a, you posted a. Heard, but I think he posted a picture of it, like an overview shot, and that because whenever you see pictures of it, you just see the four giant domes, like on the the stupid ass heads, uh, yeah. on the side of, and then the but you never actually see what the mountain size actually looks like, and you pan out, and it's gorgeous. It's like really beautiful, like features. I don't know much about the geology, but it is, it's amazing. And then you just have this disgusting, like white, like blight on the side of this that's carved in. It's actually, so the
0: mountain to the Sioux people before it was desecrated, was called Six Grandfathers. So um, maybe someday when we blow off those faces or paint, juggler paint on them, we can start calling (laughs) it Six Grandfathers again. Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, um, I think I think the, the the story behind the actual carving of it is that the government wanted to increase tourism to the area so that um, South Dakota would join the Union as a Republican state because they were kind of like on par with the amount of Democratic states at that time. Um, and that was that was their kind of draw. It was like no one was really going to live there, and it wasn't really going to be sustainable as a state if they didn't have some draw. Um, so they made this like fucking weird <laughs> monument to like what they considered to be four influential presidents at
0: the time yeah and i think one last thing before we get into the actual of what happened on july 3rd is that the reason the the u.s backtracked on their agreement was because they started finding gold mm-hmm. in um, in the black hills so as soon as that land started looking like it was actually valuable and white people might want to live there and benefit from extraction then it was like uh never mind that treaty doesn't count which which tends to be the way it goes. I mean, it's it's the same exact story as um, Standing Rock. It's like when the land's useless, it's fine to get give, give it to the Native Americans, but as, as soon as, 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 as there's, there's some kind of value, in, yeah. yeah. So J.K. That, taking it back. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Um, um, so this and, takes us to July third.
2: Well, before that, um just want to really quickly point out, so the four presidents that are on this thing, Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, and Lincoln, slave owner, slave owner, <laughs> hated Native Americans, and quote-unquote emancipated Black people, but probably hated them, actually. But also, hated Native,
1: Americans. And also yeah. hated Native Americans.
2: Yeah, Abe Lincoln did some shitty stuff to Native
0: Americans, including genocide. Yeah. The ultimate shitty thing. <laughs> yeah, and uh I love, you know, Thomas Jefferson just... He wasn't just a slave owner people kind of do this normalization thing they're like oh everybody in the south owns slaves it then he raped his 14 year old slave S- sally hemmings and um not only did he rape her but she gave birth to his own children and he made them his slaves too so that is shitty by any time period standards
2: yep and when we talked about before like taking down confederate statues or taking down um statues or monuments of confederates um and a lot of people kind of st- use it like oh this these are historical points and, and then re- kind of when you talk about Mount Rushmore returning the land or getting rid of these god-awful fucking um monuments um especially this one Mount Rushmore they're worried about like oh it's not disrespecting to American history or these are these are their founding fathers of American history and we need to acknowledge them and kind of rever- uh, uh, revere them these were all pieces of shit like they should not be (laughs) commemorated they should not disgustingly adorn a beautiful like geological site especially one that belongs to indigenous people by fucking treaty like they they should not have this this reverence that they have like you can talk about america you can love this country as much as you want but these are just fucking justifiably disgusting terrible
0: people yeah yeah and again i hate the whole like for the time period it was the norm argument just because like if there was a single abolitionist alive then people knew it was wrong like it's not like everybody thought it was okay there were plenty of people that knew this shit was wrong back then now do we want to talk about i feel like even if it was a
1: a monument to like someone honorable who we actually we actually revered and was probably revered as a historical figure it's like it's still stolen land that was like taken by the well, government the, and then immediately that's actually by the park service
0: well that's a real thing like there's the crazy horse monument that remains unfinished that's near mount rushmore it's also a big monstrosity being carved into a beautiful mountain yeah and the indigenous people that live there didn't ask for that like nobody said <laughs> like it was just white people being like, "Oh, I know how we'll make this better. Um, we were not going to take any input from you. We're going to tell you how we're going to apologize, and it's by fucking up another one of your sacred mountains."
1: Yeah, I wonder what I wonder. I mean, I'm sure I can I can research this. I just haven't. But I wonder what if they what what their plan would be for the area that the actual Mount Rushmore monument is. Part, like, what would they do with that actual mountain if they were to get it back?
2: Yeah. They could and do whatever. The sell
1: tickets like, to blowing yeah. it up. But <laughs> all the money stays the to Oh, man.
2: They could, they could set up some city <laughs> routes on it.
1: <laughs> Apparently, there they are. They bolt it.
2: Oh, man. Because it's granite. They, it would be tight if they let it up racks. so that it can climb up the side of Abraham Lincoln's face. yeah I don't, I
1: well, don't know if, if there is climbing. But it is a granite, granite rock. And there's, like, a lot of good cracks. I was talking about this with someone the other day that, like, there is also, I mean, this isn't often discussed in the park service, but there's a huge rockfall danger with putting off fireworks right there, is because it's like it's basically like Yosemite. It's like tall blocks of granite um, that are really prone to just like chunking and flaking off. So a lot of the president's faces, like like half of like Washington's face and like Lincoln's hair, are all these like kind of discrete blocks of granite that if they were to be hit with a firework, they'd just fall. <laughs> but I think there is like a lot of like crack climbing on the actual faces and in the mountain around them. But I don't know if that's yeah. like, I don't know if the park service allows climbing there. And I also don't know if like, even if the park service were not involved, if like the, that being a sacred site would deter climbing. I mean, I, I don't know what they've really done with Devil's Tower in Wyoming. I think it's similar. It's like, it's like a sacred site to the people who live there and then indig- indigenous people, but also it's like a climbers mecca. <laughs> so I don't know how they yeah. really like Climbers that, don't but...
2: give a shit about any of these things. Uh, they, yeah. they would climb it. Yeah. yeah, I've that's
1: never true. been there. So There's, I don't know or... if the tribes have asked people not to climb or what they do. But I don't know if they do the same similar thing at Rushmore.
0: But I mean, like, ultimately, we should just give that back to them, honor the treaty. And even if the tribes decided they wanted to leave Mount Rushmore up and charge tickets to Trump voters to go look at it, then that's up to them, you know? Yeah. But ultimately, it's their land.
1: Yeah. That's what they've done with, uh, like, Avacyn Falls. Like, they've mm-hmm. they've taken that as, like, a tourist um, attraction and they charge an insane amount of money, but all the money goes back into the tribe. So So it's like, I can't even be mad. (laughs) If people are willing to pay like literally $300 to camp here to get an Instagram photo, like, fuck. Yeah. Like (laughs) I respect the hustle. Like you're keeping all that money from the tribe. Like sure. Go for it. It's like capitalism that I support.
0: Yeah. It, I think if anyone's interested in hearing more about like indigenous issues in the outdoors and, in just normal life, um, the Red Nation podcast is awesome. Uh, it's hosted by a guy Nick Estes that lives in Albuquerque, and he was he's a professor at University of New Mexico. Um, and he's an indigenous person, and he was he wrote a book about Standing Rock and was super involved in the protests up there and stuff. And it's an amazing podcast. So shouts out to them. Hey, what happened on the Fourth of July? Okay, July third. July third. July third. Badass Lakota activists. That are I can't stress this enough how brave they they are um, they blocked the the road in the Mount Rushmore for over two hours all the Trump shit had to get delayed a bunch of angry sausage heads couldn't get in <laughs> <laughs> to where they wanted to see their big wet president <laughs> um, but the way they did it was super badass so and it's this is why I was so nervous and like felt like I was gonna have a panic attack for two hours straight while I was watching it is they they parked a couple of vans in the middle of the road and they took the tires off of one of them. So it would be really hard to move it. And I think there was under a hundred protesters, um, mostly indigenous Lakota people. And they, um, they, they formed a line and they held it. And so there, there was their vans and them, a line of police, and then just a mass of angry Trump people. So it's like, It it was so scary to watch them. It's like, are the police going to tear gas them and shoot rubber bullets at them? Are the police going to let the angry Trump voters through and let these do do what happened in Albuquerque and just let these, like, militia groups come and just, like, open fire on these natives or, like, what the fuck's going to happen here? Um, And then the police surrounded them. They got on the other side of them, too. So there was two lines of cops surrounding the small groups of protesters. Um. There was a really long standoff, um, and the police kept saying they were going to shoot tear gas at them if they didn't leave the road, and they kept putting their um, gas masks on and pulling their shields down and all this stuff and, like, getting ready to shoot the tear gas, and I'm guessing the cops have some kind of PR-type person (laughs) that was telling them, like, you... Absolutely cannot shoot tear gas at Indigenous people on Indigenous (laughs) lands (laughs) will be way bad nightmare. (laughs) Big yikes! Yeah. So (laughs) every time they threatened to do that, they like ended up not doing it, and then they did the weird cop thing where they like form a line with their shields and like march towards them like a Greek phalanx type thing, (laughs) (laughs) and um, the like
2: cyberpunk dystopian line of cops with shields, yeah
0: and the the lakota were super badass and they formed a tight line too with no shields and they actually held the cops like the they basically like what you would see in like rugby or football like they just went like head to head with the cops they managed to snatch a couple of their shields which was awesome (laughs) um and made the cops retreat a couple times and like regroup and decide like well i guess we can't arrest them this way either um I left out the part. There's a lot of elders and women and children in this protest group, so that um, that I think that's one of the reasons the cops were like holding back a bit from shooting rubber bullets and tear gas and shit. They did shoot uh, some. It's almost like they bullets. have a soul. <laughs> yeah, I, I I do think it was more of a PR thing than having a soul thing. Yeah. Um. Eventually, the National Guard showed up, and um, some park rangers showed up, and one of the leaders of the protest groups um, managed to talk with, I don't think he wanted to talk to the cops, but he would talk to the, the park's employees. Um,
1: oh, so, so he, wait, so park rangers are not <laughs> under ACAP?
0: No, they according, are. According to this. <laughs> But maybe they're a little less of <laughs> bastards than the normal riot Some police. Some
1: rangers are bastards.
0: <laughs> yeah. This guy was awesome. I was watching the Unicorn Riot stream, and they got like right up to the, this protest organizer talking to this uh, group of park rangers, and the the guy was so awesome and so well-spoken, and he said, like, look, this is a, we want to negotiate with you guys um at this point they had brought tow trucks in to try to tow the vans away and they're like you gotta like put our vans down and like put us back on equal ground and then we'll they're, we're willing to talk about like how, what we need for us to like let people through and the park rangers were like we already actually tried that like it's not up to us and um they're gonna come in and arrest you and the guy's like we need 30 minutes to get our women and our children and our elders away from here. If you're going to come in and arrest us. And the park ranger was like, all right, let me go back and talk to the County police and see if they're willing to do that. Uh, long story short, they agreed on that and they were like, okay, we're going to move in to arrest you in 30 minutes. So you have that long to get your um, women and children and elders away, away from the violence that's about to happen. Um, the protesters were a little sneaky and very clever, and they used that as a time to get anybody that had arrest warrants out as well. Like, with they just kind of left with the women and children. Um, so, then after that, there was a group of probably 30 people um, that stayed there and peacefully chose to get arrested. Um, there was a bail fund for them that. On. I don't want to get it wrong. I don't. know. I can't remember. It. I'm gonna to have to. I, I tweeted it, but we'll post it on our other social media too. But there's a bail fund um, for the people that got arrested. I think most of them are out already, but um, it's still a good thing to give to because um, I'm sure there's gonna be more of these protests. But yeah, that's it. I was like super proud watching it, even though I was really nervous for them that like the a small group managed to totally derail this event and caused two hours worth of delays and they weren't able to stop it from happening entirely, but they were able to inconvenience a lot of people and raise a lot of awareness of like how fucked up this treaty violation is and how, um, Mount Rushmore shouldn't even exist in the first place. And this is, you know, these indigenous rights don't make front page news very often. Um, It's it's such a small group of people, percentage-wise, in the United States. So it's great to see their representation. And it's one of those things where, like, I think most Americans, like, conservative and liberal and far-left, most people agree that um, these people were wronged. Like, the indigenous people in in the United States, what was none of them was super fucked up. There might be some disagreement on, like, what should be done about that now, but most people do agree that it was a, a fucked up thing that happened. So I think that's one thing that is potentially a little bipartisan is just to raise awareness that these injustices are still going on. So if you think that was an injustice when it happened in 1868, it's still an injustice now. I don't know
2: if I agree with all people are agreeing with that. I feel like there's. I a didn't, lot of I didn't see
0: are... everyone said that, but I think there are people on all sides that yeah. think
2: that yeah and it's all but it doesn't really matter if you feel like oh you you can agree that it was wrong but if we're not doing anything to correct that like it's it's just words then in that case yeah i just think about the whole like anti-racist like
0: how we're by we i mean white people like we're supposed to be like talking to our relatives and stuff that hold racist views um and i feel like that's a good end because like i think of people like my grandma and like she does think that the the indigenous genocide was a horrible thing and she's not like denying that it happened or anything like that so it's easy to like talk to family members that have that mindset and say like look um do you agree that this this and this were wrong when they happened in 1868 and they'll say oh yeah that was horrible that never should have happened that's a dark spot on our past and we can say like okay look at how this directly relates to what's going on today in 2020 um how can you believe that this was wrong but this is okay and it's it's just a good in for these anti-racist
2: conversations. I'm um, looking at a comment, uh, and, and one, oh. which is already a mistake. <laughs> yeah, but just to just to give you a, just to give you an example of how people, whether or not people agree with that, Jordan. Uh, here's a comment on an ABC News article. Guess what? The Native Americans lost the lost the war just like the South lost their war. Why is it different that all the South heritage traditions can be erased from history, but not the Native Americans? This is the fallacy of liberal thinking. It is not logical and has no moral basis or standard of equality.
0: Yeah. So once again, standing up for my comment, I didn't say that everyone believes that. And certainly comment trolls can't be reached and they just need to be sent to the gulags. But um, there are like normal conservative people that have sympathy, especially for indigenous people.
2: Also, damn, like I was reading, I'm reading more about this now. And apparently it was like 7,500 people there and they masks were not mandatory neither was social distancing. And it's goddamn, that's so fucked up. It's like all these people coming in, crowding around, getting sick, and then potentially spreading this disease to this indigenous population.
1: Yeah. And the speech itself was like super divisive. Like I was, I was disappointed because I mean, I didn't have high hopes for Trump. I was expecting him to at least like acknowledge the power of like our national parks or like land or some aspect of
2: like i have no idea why you thought that (laughs) yeah because like Um, historically
1: there have been so many presidents who've given addresses from national parks that have been really inspiring especially in really um like divisive times about like hey if there's one thing we can all agree on it's like how great these parks are am i right you know like shit sucks right now like he could have you know, been, he didn't acknowledge coronavirus, but he could have said, like, oh, we're in a pandemic, all this shit's going wrong. Like, he could, have, he could have shit-talked the left and then still ended with the message of, like, oh, but look how great this place is, look how great, like, our land is that our park service manages or something like that. But instead, it was just, like, super divisive political shit in which he called, he called out, like, far-left fascism, which is a term oh, that dude, it, it took a while to wrap my brain around.
2: You sweet, naive summer child. Thingy. No, well, he's like, got galaxy brain. That seems exactly theory. like when, when I heard about what he said, I was like, yeah, that sounds exactly like what I expected. I did not. Well, I was I, That sounds tamer than I thought it was going to be. Not his if, Las Vegas shout out was super funny though.
1: <laughs> okay, but I'm wondering that if, if, if he declared Antifa a terrorist group or whatever he did, but then he's also going to call out fascism who is the real enemy here? Like, which one do we trust?
0: I'm telling you, he has galaxy brain and he fully <laughs> understands horseshoe theory and that if you go like far enough right, you become left or far enough left, you become right.
2: <laughs> it's an Ouroboros. Spectrum. It's just the snake eating itself. It's, <laughs> there is no beginning. There is no end. <laughs> all fascists are anti-fascists and all anti-fascists are fascists. Yeah, he's actually a Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, I think, I think the content of the speech was supported a lot because the mayor of South Dakota is, like, a huge Trump supporter. She was yeah. like, yeah, no, we don't give a shit about social distancing. She was like, we're going to give out masks if people want them. It was like the same bullshit that they said to cover their asses at the Tulsa rally. And, like, of course no one's going to wear one.
2: Yeah, they purposefully won't wear one out of spite. Um, last quick thing. I'm going to finish it up. We're almost an hour. Yeah. Uh, Ah oh, god, I feel like I want to rail on this for so much longer than this, but yeah, I also we might don't want we might need there.
1: more time to
2: chip time. Oh, Go baby go. This Hill. fucking outside article about the piece of shit who finished the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> um, the, I,
1: I mean, we already the, we covered this topic like just not this article, you
2: know. Or this is like the first episode we We, we have a about specific that. we have a specific guy now. Yeah. True.
1: Yeah, we have a, we <laughs> we know it's not a. it's not a straw man. It's like this man.
2: Oh, uh, so and this is the second guy. So this is just the the one that they actually interviewed and talked about. There's a, someone else apparently finished before him, um but this guy Andrew Underwood is an outside article, outside online article about um, this guy who finished the Appalachian Trail, and it just goes really into depth until just the lengths that he took to finish this trail. So the AT, the AT asked for people to stay off it pretty early on in the pandemic. Most people got off trail. There was a few like diehards who stuck on there who just didn't give a shit, who just, and I, so I don't know the demographic breakdown of the, the people who stayed on trail and the people who finished them. I'm going to guess, I'm going (laughs) to guess, I'm going to go on a little, educated guess guess (laughs) is that they were 100% white. (laughs) Sounds about white. There's I I can't imagine the description of the of all the things this guy did to finish this fucking trail, to like hiding from the police in the side of a road, like lying to people about getting back on road, lying to uh, in, the, in the last five miles were closed, katadin was closed, Katadin, whatever. <laughs> um and just hiding out like having to do the last five miles which were at, the rest of the trail opened up by then and then but the last five miles were still closed and decided to just sneak through and do them anyway i can't imagine being anything other than a white dude and doing all this stuff like being able to get away with it a feeling one feeling like you can do it feeling privileged and entitled enough to be just feel like yeah i can get away with this it's not a big deal and then just feeling like none of this applies to you and that you can just go do whatever the fuck you want
1: yeah, if this was, I mean, if this was, I feel like the the rhetoric of like, oh, if people of color would just stop breaking the law, like, then they wouldn't get killed by police, or like, people should just follow the law, and then they won't get in these problems. But then when it comes to like, this white dude lying to police and breaking laws, it's like, oh, boys will be boys. Like, you know, he just had this dream that he wanted to achieve. And like, you know, he did whatever... It had whatever he had to do he broke down all the barriers that were standing in his way to achieve
2: his dream yeah. yeah like what a what a complete reversal like the, the portrayal of it of just being like this robin hood like hero who's just like defying the the evil atc and all the evil yeah. curfew the laws and stuff to to fulfill his dream of um uh, murdering by virus thousands of people <laughs> like I'm not I, saying he did that, but like that's like that. That whole idea is just that he didn't care about any of these people. All he cared about was finishing this fucking hike, or High Water. All right, I have a question for
0: you guys. I think I know how you're gonna answer, but I'm curious. <laughs> um, we talked about like the climbing community a lot earlier. Like we really like idolize these. Um, we don't need to get into the whole history of climbing, but there's these group of like kind of rebellious, rambunctious climbers in like the 50s through 70s that stayed in yosemite in this area called camp four and they're famous for like breaking rules and climbing in areas they weren't supposed to climb staying in the park longer than they were supposed to stealing food from the dining areas and stuff and they really are seen as these like awesome like robin hood rebel type guys that were like hiding from park rangers and stuff and doing cool shit to to build a climbing culture in Yosemite. And I know I feel that way about those guys. Like when I watch like the documentaries and videos and stuff, I'm like, dang, these guys are fucking badass. We have it easy now with climbing where we can just like go and like, just go do it. And like people give us a pat on the back when we get done. Um, this guy did, you could argue he did a similar thing.
2: Well, I would, the think with the climbers is that a lot of those rules weren't established. Like when they were doing that stuff, when they were, then they were like bolting or or adding all these patons to a lot of the routes or establishing the routes and drilling stuff in. like none of those rules were in place like they were, they weren't explicitly banned from doing that stuff like it and and even then there was a lot of discussion about the etiquette of doing that like there's this kind of famous like rivalry between Royal Robbins and Warren Harding and Warren Harding mm-hmm. was just bolting everything or just fucking nailing giant batons to everything and, and then royal Robbins coming by and chopping all his bolt and chopping and taking all the gear out so it's it's not like it's they were universally lauded um there there was a lot of mm-hmm. discussion about etiquette back then and nowadays it's pretty common to know like you you unless you are part of like a climbing coalition or something in the nearby area you're a local or something like you you really don't do that anymore like that's gone mm-hmm. out of fashion especially with that and different gear and and i mean like people do in the climbing community do kind of kind of i talked a little bit about people still climbing like devil's tower not giving a shit about some of like native people's like sacred lands and stuff but for the most part like if there are closures people will respect them like fuck do people respect like falcon closures like they yeah, yeah they don't climb in areas where there's stuff like that so that it, it i will give the climbing community that much benefit of the doubt of saying like they that much praise is that they do follow like when they when the rules are established if not only because they want to have access to those areas but also just because they for the most part want to have they be a positive community in that regard yeah for me
0: the big difference is like the the reason why the parks and the park rangers didn't like these guys versus why um andrew underwood wasn't supposed to be hiking on the at because it was mostly just a political thing Back in the day where they didn't want like long haired hippies, like drinking beer and smoking joints in the park while they were like respectable families around, which to me, it's like, cool, break those rules. Who gives a fuck? But this guy was um, putting people in danger because it's a fucking pandemic and that <laughs> those rules make sense. It's not just like an arbitrary
2: political rule. Yeah, they're not like that's the key thing is that these, these rules are not put in place. Like the ATC fought really hard to keep the trail open. They opened it up whenever they could. It was possible, whenever it was responsible and feasible to open it back up. And the closures were like necessary. Like that's it's, it's fucking through hiking, it's walking. It's like it's not important enough for you to finish it this year. Like there's always other years you can always come back to do it. So, every God, I've talked about this so fucking many times, but yeah, it's not a big deal to just not do it this year. Go do something else. You have a year off, you can go through hike next year or whenever it's like more possible to do a shorter hike, something like, it was not vital for him to do this. It was purely because he felt entitled to the trail and felt entitled to doing this. It was just a game to him. Like, it's like, I, I haven't seen anything that says otherwise. Yeah. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the quote from the ATC's president, um, Sandy Morrow, was pretty accurate. It's like, by hiking now, you have created a narrative that says, My personal needs and desires outweigh a greater societal mission at the end of the day what's really important is what i want like yeah that's at the end of the day that's what this guy wanted it was more important to him what he wanted to do what he felt that he needed to do for himself than the larger the impact on larger communities on how through hikers are seen in the future how what potential access that we have limited because of this um yeah. And it's just really frustrating. It's, it's fucked up. Like, it's, it's infuriating. And it's just this idea of imagine, I can you imagine like trying to be a black man, trying to do the stuff that he did sure. or trying to be a black woman, trying to do any of these things, like trying to get away with this and, and just not, not being shot by the police or being turned in by like some of these white communities along this trail. like.
1: And instead you're able to like proudly talk about what you did in a fucking yeah. outside
2: article. <laughs> Like, no shame. Yeah. Like, with
1: your full name, with your Instagram, like, all your pictures. Like, no fear of reparation. And to
2: finish the article by talking about the next trail you want to do. Yeah, he's yeah. Doing
1: that. he has a permit to the PCT in a couple of days.
0: If, if he was a minority, then um, he... Like, one thing he doesn't have to think about, too, is, like, the impact this has on everybody else in his community. Whereas, like, yeah. if he was a black hiker and he did this, um, he would just tarnish, like, The public view of all black hikers, which white people don't really have to worry about as much, yeah. Because oh yeah, we see him him as an individual mostly, and like, oh, this guy's an asshole, but we're not saying like, oh, look what happens when you let whites on the trail. I mean, we're saying that, but yeah,
2: we're saying that. (laughs) I
1: I also just can't. I can't imagine being like so blatantly disrespectful to the ATC like they have nothing political to gain by asking you to stay off the trail like if anything they're they're losing a lot like this is this is you know a couple thousand fear hikers means like fewer memberships fewer people stopping into their headquarters like fewer people participating in their nonprofit which is how they survive and make money like this is damaging to them too they wouldn't close the trail just because they feel like it it's like obviously they consider this super serious and you're embarking on a journey that would not be possible without these people it's not it's not like you're walking on freeways from georgia to maine and you know you're just walking along the side of the road it's like you're, you're walking on a trail that was built by this organization like they they made this journey possible for you and they're kindly asking you to postpone your hike and you're just like i don't care fuck you like you don't matter yeah. i don't need you <laughs> i don't care about what you're asking
0: he could have just done the stupid fucking Florida Trail instead because Florida's <laughs> just been open this whole time. And yeah, idiots. Florida's yeah. good shit. Go, <laughs> just go hike um, in Florida, to, you
2: fucking idiots. To the people who... Like, there, there's obviously, like, some... Um, and some of the posts I've seen about this, and some of the responses to it, some people have been kind of like praising him, or like talking about like, "Hey, it's like someone who had a dream, who, despite all the trials and tribulations, went through and followed yes. through with their dream, and was able to accomplish this goal." Um, and but how? I wonder was like how much of that, like people who respond that way, like how much of that is informed by this being a white person doing this? Yeah, because like they don't that, support nine eleven. <laughs>
0: What? like 9 11 they don't support 9 11 and that was like some guys that had a dream that they wanted to like see through and they went and did it <laughs> and against all odds like yeah. did
2: this impossible thing <laughs> but yeah like i wonder just how much of that like influences their response to them like, to this like if if it had been a if there had been a black man who finished who all these things who, who finished this hike who, who did all the sketchy shitty shit that these people that this guy did, like how many of them would have been, had the same response? How many of them would be admiring him for, for doing this, for accomplishing his, his goals and his dreams?
0: None because he'd be dead. <laughs> he would have got shot for trespassing on a, like by night hiking and people freaking out and yeah. God knows
2: what would happen to him. Yep. And that, that is a perfect example of like privilege and in the outdoors just this whole this whole fucking article
0: <sighs>
2: is this guy uh
0: is he on social media and shit
1: he is. Yeah. i so haven't I, looked for
0: him can... I, i'm a little bit afraid of like finding him on social yeah. media because i'm just gonna right. spend
2: too much time looking at his profile
0: all right everyone go brigade him find him on instagram and <laughs> do your thing yeah
1: I, I had found his his page before his name is andrew underwood his uh, real name is Denver.
2: Because uh, guess what? He's from Denver. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I hope they have him on Backpacker Radio. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Down, god, ruler clips send a ruler hit. Pull up on your bitch. She say that I got a ruler dick. Spray your block down. We not really with that ruler shit. Glock caught now. I don't really get no fuck about who I hit. Yeah, your bitch. She get jiggy with me. Keep that ciggy with me. Bitch, I'm mad. Match, you know why I got ziggy with me. Keep a mad mat. Case a nigga wanna get busy with me. Rory mad black. And I got a me. I got one, two, three. Four five six some eight M's in my bank account. Yeah, okay? 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 in my bank account. Okay? I got one, two, three, four, five, six, some eight shooters ready to gun you down. Ready gun you down okay? Yeah, ready to gun you down. Yeah, ready to gun you down. Yeah, okay? ready to gun you down. Yeah, okay? ready to gun you down. Yeah, ready okay? to gun you down. Send it five hundred on the Saint Laurent jacket. Bitch, be careful when you dumpin' yo' action. I ain't no sucker, I ain't cuffin' no action. The streets raise me, I'm a whole bastard.